By the end of this decade, we think that Indonesia will be the fourth largest consumer market on the planet. You got China, India, US, and then comes Indonesia. It's bigger than Brazil, bigger than Germany, bigger than the UK. You now see that Chinese companies I mentioned earlier, but also international companies and brands are starting to say, hey, we need to go there. But I think many more need to put Indonesia on their radar screen. Hello, welcome to Strictly Money, where finance and your prosperity meet. I'm Sejal Patel. You are going to love today's show, because if you are looking to supercharge your investments in 2024, and if you have not looked at Asia yet, you want to stay put. You see, Asia has delivered some of the biggest returns over the last two decades. That's because you're seeing huge demographic shifts there and big economic reforms. And it really does make the area a no-brainer when it comes to growth and diversification. I have a powerhouse guest on today. Harold Vanderland is the head of Asia-Pacific Equity Strategy at HSBC. He is also the author of Asia Stock Markets from the ground up. It's a must-read for anyone eyeing the region. And he joins me now from Hong Kong. Hello, Harold. Welcome to Strictly Money and joining us from Hong Kong. Great to see you. Yeah, good to see you again as well. Thank you very much for having me on. So I'm really happy to have you on because I find that Asia, at least investing in Asia, is often misunderstood. And as you know, I lived in Asia for 11 years. I was in... Uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, if I'm remember, right? That's right. That's right. I was in Singapore for six, uh, Hong Kong for five. And I have so much uh, appreciation for its diversity and the fact that it just offers immense growth potential for investors. So I wanted to ask you, what do you think the biggest misconceptions are when it comes to investing in Asia? I, I think one misconception is that people just put the whole region together. There are massive differences between Korea, Japan, India, culturally, geographically, the nature of the companies. Now, China is currently getting a bit of a bad rap because the stock market is not performing very well. And people then just give up on Asia. Now, I'll give you a nice stat here. If you would have had 100 US dollars and you would have invested that in all the Asian stock markets, but also the S&P 500, on the 1st of January 2020, it's a bit of a long time ago, but it's a nice time to start the millennium. And it's probably a time over which people save money in a lifetime as well, maybe 25 years. If you would have made that $100 would have been about 560 US dollars in the S&P 500. If you would have put that in some Asian markets, you wouldn't have done that much better and with a lot of volatility. But if you put it in India, 1300. If you put it in Indonesia, two and a half thousand US dollars. That's five times as good. So there are these markets where actually there's tremendous growth and opportunities. And you shouldn't yeah, ignore that if, for example, another market gets a bit of a bad rep. Yeah, well, you know, and, and when you think about this, 60% of the world's population is in Asia, Harold. Uh, the top five economies, at least three of the top five are there, right? You have China, you have, you have Japan, and you have India. Yeah. Indonesia is also one of the biggest contributors to growth. It's a bit smaller, but will be one of the biggest consumer markets by the end of this decade on the planet, bigger than, let's say, Brazil, bigger than uh, Germany or the UK. People forget about that. So this, uh, absolutely, these markets are big. Because of the growing middle class and the, and the population as well. 
you mentioned China. Let's let's talk about China for a minute because it, it it has had its share of problems. You know, difficulties in the property sector. There's there's debt issues, and at least from the Western sort of point of view, you see this sort of alienation. You know, um, increasing alienation at least at least from the U.S. However, it like I said, it's still the second largest economy in the world. So what happens there does matter. How do you think North Americans should be looking at China? I think we have to simply accept that the U.S. and China will be in competition for power on the planet. These are the two big players now. The U.S. is bigger than China. China is rising. The U.S. is established, of course. But these are the two big players. Europe is a is a big market, but politically fragmented. And other places, and I'm talking about India or Indonesia, they're much smaller, right? So these are the two big. And there will be increased competition between these two economies. And I hope healthy competition. Sometimes that means that the Chinese would like to buy something from China, from the U.S. and they can't get their hands on. It will also be the other way around. Uh, China dominates in solar panels. It dominates in electric vehicles, amongst others. So it's not that whatever the U.S. makes is better at the moment. In certain areas, China is absolutely doing much better. Hopefully, this relationship will be one of competition, but also mutually beneficial. They continue to trade in these sort of things. But what we also see in the world, in and this is China is, is no exception to that, that it prepares itself for this kind of increasing tensions with the U.S. It knows that in certain areas it could get cut off. That is in high-end tech. It actually imports a lot of food, amongst others from the US, or soybeans, amongst others, or from Brazil, but that, that's a weakness. And it needs to import a lot of fuel, gas, oil, not necessarily from the US, although it, some of it comes maybe from the US, but really from the Middle East. But that's a, a weakness as well. So what is China doing? It is trying to become self dependent, self-sufficient in this. So in, for example, energy, it goes after solar, wind, hydro, these sort of alternative energies. And the whole drive in electric vehicles, I think, is related to this in the sense that, that then they don't have to buy fuel from other countries. This is so in food and this is some of the other industries as well. And clearly in China, they want that to grow. They're putting the policies in place to grow. And China is a stock market where it's big. So maybe the stock market, it has not done so well, but some of these sectors have done really, really well. So you shouldn't ignore that in the sense. So that's one way of looking at uh, China. There are pockets of really good growth. And Harold, I was going to ask you, you know, if North America does sort of shun China from a business perspective, as we're starting to see, I wonder, does it really matter? Because from what I can see, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the rest of Asia doesn't see China the way North America sees sees China. They're, they do business. We see, you know, like you mentioned, Africa does business with, with China. So does the Middle East. So does it really matter? It matters to a certain extent, because if the U.S. says we do not want to buy certain products from either Chinese companies, they might make that somewhere else. So because these supply chains of, of all kinds of products go into Southeast Asia and the rest of Asia, that is not only for Chinese companies, that's also for, let's say, Apple. Apple makes for example, certain computers still in China, but the components come from Malaysia or being tested in Malaysia. Some of it is maybe made in India. You are right that because these Chinese companies will struggle to sell their product in the US, because the US might say, we don't want this product, or the consumers to say, I'm not going to buy a Chinese car. I'm happy to buy a Japanese car or an American car, a European car, but not a Chinese car. These things can happen, right? So those will be difficult markets for the Chinese to penetrate. And you see in EVs, they're not really making a big push into the US. And in Europe, that will probably be difficult as well because they're very strong established players. Although on electric vehicles, the Chinese are ahead. But what do they do? Oh, they go to 
for example, India, they go, for example, to Southeast Asia. So we see consumer companies, auto companies, healthcare companies, banks from China or from the rest of Asia going into India, into Indonesia, because just as we mentioned earlier on, they've really figured out this, hey, there's not too bad growth in those markets. So these markets are more susceptible to us. They're willing to take our products because these countries are not pro-US or anti-US and neither pro-China or anti-China. They're, they're kind of in the middle. So they're willing to take either US or Chinese company in, the, in in this kind of example that we have here. So yeah, the Chinese companies are actively building up businesses in, in those regions as well. Has China started making progress with some of the domestic issues like, like the property sector and, and some of the debt issues that we're hearing about? Yeah, so there are two key issues that are interrelated. I would say maybe actually three, and one of them they haven't made progress on. The first issue that you highlighted is property. So too much property built, a lot of it is difficult to be sold. For a long time, we knew about these, these cities that they built up, but there was sufficient amount of demand. But at some point in time, that started to fade. Demand wasn't really there anymore. Too much supply. Problem is property prices go down. And you, you get a problem. Now, what have they done over the last two years? They try to see these prices adjust. They've allowed companies to go either bankrupt or to break these companies, these property companies up. These companies have really shrunk a lot. But over the last, say, six months, they've also said, okay, let's tweak on the mortgage regulations. Maybe we allow people to buy it again. Uh, we make sure that credit is available. And what we now see, actually, is that prices in many Chinese cities are starting to move up year on year. So they've come down a lot. So it's it's maybe too early to say there's a, an upward trend from here. But we actually see that in quite a few pockets now, Chinese property prices are moving in the right direction. So that they're trying to turn that slowly. That's the first thing. Then you have about debt. This is interrelated. This is actually local governments that have too much debt in order to build subways, hospitals, schools, and uh, roads, and these sort of things over the last years. They spend way too much on projects that they probably shouldn't have spent money on. Uh, not all cities need an enormously large conference center and two airports and, and these sort of things, right? The companies who made that, they struggle. There is a, a serious debt problem. They have started to address that as well. There is, for example, bankruptcy uh, issues are being taken in certain cases they inject money. In other cases, they ask companies to buy something over. So that is moving as well, but that's probably going to take quite a few years. So that's a, a key issue. A last issue I think that they should still address is what I would call sometimes surprise announcements on regulations on all sorts of industries. Late in December, they suddenly came out just before Christmas, great timing, on regulations that would really change, for example, on how many hours children should be able to watch video games and these sort of things. And now, uh, you might like this or not, but in China, the, the feeling is the government needs to step this in. There's too many hours uh, children on, on gaming, on, on uh, video games. Now, you might like it or not, the government uh, interference in that sense, but it was just announced. Then the share prices of these stocks collapsed, and then they figured out oh, that that wasn't really that what they were looking for. Then they changed the regulations again, and it creates just uncertainty. But we've, we've seen a couple of times that policy announcements have come through, and they've not been really clear and confused the market more than anything else. That's something that needs to disappear as well, and that will take a bit of time for confidence to come back. Yeah, you definitely see sort of that the big brother, and and like you said, you know, you may like it or not. One of the things that I guess I can appreciate with, with China is that they can move very quickly, 
you know, whereas in a democracy, you know, obviously I, I value democracy, but it definitely has issues, right? Things don't move as fast in North American societies. Absolutely. They don't move as fast and uh, things need to be discussed and chewed over and these sort of things in a democracy. And that is the strength of a democracy, but that comes with kind of, yeah, unintended, intended consequences that process making can be slower. And in China, you can make a U-turn much faster. Yeah. Can we talk about Japan? Japan's really interesting to me, Harold, because it was an outperformer in 2023. Um, what what was going on? And and can investors expect something similar in 2024? The short answer to the question is, I think probably not. Okay. But there were four things going on in Japan. One of the most important things is that Japan is a large export market. Most of the earnings in Japan are coming from exports. Right? That's Japanese auto companies, and you've got clothing companies, and computer companies, and automation. You name it, they export. It's not just Japan. So what we've seen is that the yen has weakened. Okay. But that's a story in itself. Why that is the case, we don't have to go into that. The yen has weakened. Which makes the exports cheaper. Exactly. So your profits go up. So th that has been a key story. And that was the initial driver of the sheer market, uh, stock market performance. Then a couple of other issues came in place. And the second most important is corporate governance. For years, just a step back, a lot of Japanese corporates are kind of part of a larger group, a, what is called a keiretsu. A keiretsu is a group of companies that are aligned with themselves, very often have a common shareholder or family or something like that behind that. In, in Korea, we call them chables. And there are, let's say, six companies in it. And number one owns number two, three, and four. Four owns five, six, and three. Three owns six and five, but not two, but a, a stake in one. You, you get the idea. I remember that. All kinds of cross-holdings. And Japanese companies, partially because of this, sets on large piles of cash and they didn't do anything. A U.S. shareholder could say, oh, you need to do something with the cash, invest it or bring it back to us. But they said, well, what can you do as shareholders, as the market participant? Uh, I'm owned by my friendly companies in my group, and I listen to them, not, not necessarily to you. The government always wanted to change this. And uh, by 2000, what was it, 14, 15, Abenomics was being put in place and un unmantling these, these cross-holdings was something they wanted to do. Um, initially, they just asked, can you do this? They didn't help. Then they tried to put in some regulations, didn't really help either. But then they found something that absolutely worked. Shaming. <laughs> they put a market index together of 400 oh, companies. They said, these are the 400 companies that are really good. And every year we will look at if they are profitable enough to be in here. And if they're not profitable enough, we kick them out and we put other companies in here. And they publicly said, these are the companies that are kicked out of the good quality companies list in Japan. Now, those companies had to go and explain themselves. Journalists would come over, why you're not in the index anymore? They were shamed. That's why the shame index came from. Now, uh, over the last couple of days, they've put also a code of corporate governance in place. They're now announcing companies that are changing uh, the way they pay dividends and do share buybacks and these sort of things. So some companies in Japan have said, oh my God, yeah, okay, the climate is changing. Let's change this. They pay the cash out in dividends. They do share buybacks and all these sort of things. There are some companies that, Mm, we're not going to do this. We're, this is not for us. We're going to delist. So we've seen delistings. A more prominent one is, for example, Toshiba, uh, that's a, the technology computer company. And there are some companies who said, okay, um, this is a new world. Let's slash into some of the cross-ownership levels we have. So corporate changes in corporate governance will take a long time, but that's been a key sentiment driver as well. And then there are one or two smaller issues at play in Japan as well. For example, some tax benefits have been given to people from the 1st of January to buy more stock. So maybe there's some domestic buying taking place. 
So that's good. That's really interesting. The shaming is really interesting, <laughs> Harold. It's a great story, because- right? Yeah. It's a great story. And, you know, because a lot of the culture is about saving face, isn't it? Yeah, it's, yeah. And, and then the government saying publicly, sorry, you're a good company. You're not on a good list. Yeah, that's something that the management then says, okay, we need to work on it. So that's interesting. The, the only problem with the Japanese market is because I said the short answer is no, and I give you all the good reasons to right. be in Japan. I was going to ask you. Is that not everybody is actually bought into it. So most funds are up to here in Japan exposure. They can buy more. But everybody is really bought into that already, so that that's that's an issue a little bit. The yen could also suddenly strengthen, so that that is a risk that that, that could potentially happen. So that's something to keep in mind. And yeah, so the, uh, what would be really interesting for me, at least, if that shaming that takes place in Japan, if that go over to Korea, because in Korea we have similar structures, and uh, that that the Korean regulators might look at Japan and say, "Hey, we're going to do something similar." I don't know, but that that would be a really interesting. Yeah, you know? I wouldn't be surprised if they are. Harold, we have so much more to uncover, but uh, we have to take a pause because we're going to hear from our sponsors, BMO ETFs, whom without, I could not be doing this podcast. So we'll take a quick break and we'll be right back. Are you looking to enhance the level of cash flow from your investments? BMO ETFs has you covered with their Covered Call ETFs. These ETFs generate cash flow from two sources, the dividend yield from the underlying securities and the premium generated from selling the call options. BMO Covered Call ETFs strike a balance between generating cash flow and participating in the growth of rising markets with their experienced portfolio management team and effective strategy with over 10 years of history. BMO ETFs is the largest covered call ETF provider in Canada covering 13 covered call ETFs across a range of strategies across regions, countries, and sectors. Visit BMOETFs.com to learn more. Please read the ETF facts or prospectus of the BMO ETFs before investing. Welcome back. I'm here with Harold Vangeland from HSBC. And we've been talking about Asia, at least unpacking Asia and where the uh, investment opportunities are. Harold, let's talk about India. India to me is very interesting because its equity market has seen gains from what I understand, eight straight years in a row. It does make me wonder if it's overvalued and whether there is still opportunity there. Yes. Indeed, India has been on a roll. And the thing is, it probably will continue to do so. Why is that the case? Because the key drivers of the growth in India for the companies have to do with long-term trends. For example, it's a young population that is is moving to cities and, and therefore demand what they want to buy. And if they get a job, is changing. That is not something that the government, if you raise interest rates or there's inflation, is going to change. That is continuing. We see, for example, that the formal retailers... Uh, what you and I would consider retailers, they're gaining market share over the informal retails, which is basically mom and pop stores everywhere in India. That is also something, whatever happens, will continue. Whoever's the president, whatever happens with interest rates, whatever happens with, uh, I don't know, uh, geopolitics, This is these are trends that will continue for the foreseeable future. And because of that, there's an investment drive in India as well. So that's also very positive. So India's got multiple kind of long-term growth drivers that drive the earnings growth of these companies. Now, that's the great story. The difficulty is, exactly as you mentioned, valuations. It is expensive. So if you look at some of the numbers, you think, oh my God, this is ridiculous. There are companies trading at 50 times earnings. 
However, Indian companies belong to the most profitable companies on the planet. You think that Apple is profitable or you think that some of the IT companies in the US are profitable. The Indian companies might be smaller, but the amount of profits they can generate from simple investments is much bigger. They are incredibly profitable and they throw off cash. And that's what you want as an investor. So you buy something that is also really good and gives you that confidence that over the next couple of years, they, these companies will most likely continue to do good. So that's really the story of India to a large extent. Yeah. That's really interesting. So um, there's so much I want to unpack here. Are they generating a lot of cash and is is dividends a big, uh, you know, it's a big attraction? I'll give you a nice example. Let's say you and I, we've discovered a nice product, uh, blue pens. I got a blue pen here. And we think that the Indian market is something we want to go to, right? Because the Indians haven't really urbanized as much as in the other countries. Indian consumers are spread out all over the place, all over the whole country. In China, this is not the case. Indonesia, not. Indonesia, if you go to Jakarta and Surabaya, you get most of it covered. In China, Beijing, Xiamen, Shanghai, Hong Kong, Shenzhen, four or five other cities, you cover a large part of the consumer space. In India, not. You need to go to about 150 cities to get some decent coverage. For you and I, that will be very difficult. We have red tape to deal with. We have to get through the pen association, probably approvals. And if we get so far, we need to get our pens all in these places. And what you find is that the trucks disappear, the roads, and all kinds of problems. We've seen IKEA, amongst others, or other companies going into India and struggling for years. What do you do? You go to an established Indian company that has the distribution. And this is the secret working uh, in Indonesia, in, in India, distribution. They have the power of distribution. In a lot of other countries, like the US and Canada, the West, it's brand that's where the power lies. In India, it's distribution. Ah. So you can go to a company who says, I can distribute this to you for you to 1,500 cities. You sell millions of pens every year. But when I sell a pen, I will sell, give you the cash in six months' time. And half of the profits you make go to me, but I don't do anything. So you can see now why these companies are so profitable. We will probably say, oh, not so nice, but okay, we're still making good money, money. So we go with it and they actually generate a lot of cash out of it, working capital, and don't really have to invest so much. It's really profitable for them as well. And that's why these companies are so profitable. They have the power of distribution in a country where it's very difficult to get your products around. Really, really interesting. And I and I have to think, because I found this really interesting as well, Harold, is the home bias. Indian investors pretty much only invest in India. The home bias is very high. I think it is it is like 98 or 99%. Absolutely. And if they have been right, because India has done better than the S&P 500. So they look at the past and say, listen, over the last 10 years, this market has done really good. I should invest in this market. And 10 years ago, you saw uncles and people like that investing. But now with online apps and stuff, everybody's investing in stocks. Some of the, my team member in Hong Kong is an Indian lady. And she says that her father now, sits, she's not happy with this, by the way, behind the TV the whole day, simply watching news and stocks. And his friends come over and they talk stocks and they invest a bit and they trade and everybody thinks they have the better idea. And they watch the TV and all kinds of people on TV talking about it. It's it's become almost part of that culture. Equity investing is a really big thing in India. Absolutely. I, I've noticed that as well. I mean, um, it's great to see. You just want to, I always warn people of reading too much into the news. And yeah, don't go mortgage the house and uh, uh, put all the money in some spiffy <laughs> stock or something like that. Yeah. And, 
because if it goes wrong, you have a serious problem, right? Yeah. I want to go back to something, Harold, that, that you said, and you, you mentioned retailers for a bit. I mean, one of the issues that India is having is the inflation piece, right? It's, it is definitely biting into savings. Although, you know, when I go, I just can't believe how people spend and where they're getting their money from. But it is it is biting into savings. And it's that's interesting to me for an aspirational society. So where are the opportunities? And where would you say people should stay away from in terms of sectors? I think the opportunities actually do lie in uh, the domestic consumer companies. I think there's good growth there uh, because they can take over from these mom and pop stores. I'm thinking about jewelry retailers or clothing retailers and the auto companies and these sort of things. I think the banks, some of the local banks can also be tremendous opportunities. They have a phenomenal track record, but large parts of India are still underbanked. We, if you live in Canada, I'm in Hong Kong or you're in the US, you don't think about this. There's a lot of people who don't have a bank account. And if they have a bank account, they put a little bit of money on it. But these banks now are saying, okay, uh, listen, I can give you a credit card or a debit card, or I can give you a small mortgage, or you want you have a salary, I can borrow you some money to buy a motorcycle or a car. So there's a lot of opportunity for business there as well. I like the domestic uh, players. They're also in- interesting exporting sectors. They are very, very strong in software development in, in India. So there's a IT, a software IT sort of sector. And these companies provide services to US banks, Canadian pension providers and whatever, and they, they run the software behind it. So if the US and Canada and Europe are doing well, these companies tend to do pretty good as well. So that's another area you could uh, you could look at. One last question before we move on. This is an election year in India. So um, Prime Minister Narendra Modi will be seeking a third term in power. What are your thoughts about that? I'm assuming he's going to get back in. If he doesn't, could that change everything? Yeah, but this is what you said is actually the the answer to the question. Uh, There is no real opposition to him at the moment that could stand up and really be a key contender. It is most likely that he will continue to be the president of uh, Prime Minister of India. And uh, that is what the market is accepting. The market says, okay, this guy is most likely going to win. His policies, which have, uh, you can say some of things not really work, but quite a few things have worked. So that will probably continue. Uh, and that's effectively where we are. So funnily enough, uh, the elections, although it's a really big thing, might not be a big market thing because most likely it looks like he's going to win. Okay. Uh, we've covered the big markets. Um, I want to talk about some of the developing markets. Well, one in particular, Harold, and I know you, this is a favorite of yours. I see so much opportunity um, and I'm talking about Indonesia. Can you tell uh, the viewers and, and, and the listeners about your thoughts on uh, Indonesia and um, just, just the potential there for investors? Indonesia is a large market that easily gets forgotten. If you look at newspapers every day, there will be articles about China and India and Japan, but Indonesia hardly ever. But it's uh, by we did some work in it together with the Brookings Institute in the US. Uh, by the end of this decade, we think that Indonesia will be the fourth largest consumer market on the planet. You got China, India, US, and then comes Indonesia. It's bigger than Brazil, bigger than Germany, bigger than the UK. You now see that Chinese companies I mentioned earlier, but also international companies and brands are starting to say, hey, we need to go there. 
But I think many more need to put Indonesia on their radar screen. Why is Indonesia growing? A couple of things. Uh, We've had a president over the last 10 years, uh, Joko Widodo is his name. Um, He simply put infrastructure in place. Uh, I used to live in Jakarta, Indonesia. Uh, If I would go to the place where my wife comes from in the 1990s, it would take seven hours because you get stuck in potholes and their roads weren't good. Now you can get there in three hours because there's a highway. Very simple. Trains are better. Um, So, He's he's built infrastructure to connect the country. That means that if you set up a factory, you don't need to be close to the harbor in Jakarta anymore. You can go inland because your trucks can go to find the harbor somewhere else. You're not afraid to get stuck for for days on end in in some small town or something like that. Now, if these factories move inland, that's what's happening. They employ the local people there. They get a bigger salary. They buy a motorcycle. They buy a car. They want to have better foods and they trade up. So the consumer markets develop there. So this is what's going on in Indonesia. That's the first driver. The second one is Indonesia is just damn lucky. It's chock full of nickel. And the world needs nickel because we need it in batteries. So all the electric vehicle makers and battery makers, they need to go to Indonesia to get their nickel. And Indonesia said, you can get on nickel, but you need to process this. We want a battery-making industry. So a lot of money has flown into Indonesia that has strengthened the rupiah, that has meant that they don't have to defend the rupiah as much as they did in the past by raising interest rates. So their interest rates are lower. That has brought inflation under control. And everybody benefits from that as well. So there are many multiple good things going on in Indonesia on the economic front. And the stock market is growing as well. Lots of IPOs, young people coming in. So that stock market is, is growing as well. So it's definitely going to be a market people should have on the radar screens. I, I love it. And um, I, I was mentioning to you um, offline that I was just in, in Bali a year ago in, in March, but I, I used to go to Jakarta quite a bit for, for work. And, and I've seen just the tremendous change there. And, you know, you, you really do feel it. You feel the energy. Absolutely. You feel the energy. And to be honest, I found Indonesians incredibly friendly, nice people. So it, I found always it's a place where if you go to, it's it's just, it's it's fantastic to be there. So uh, yeah, not, yeah. not to mention you went to the Bali. food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the food is fantastic as well. That's right. Harold, I teach women, um, as you know, I teach investing to women uh, along with a lot of other financial planning concepts. I have this holistic program. And, and one of the concepts that I teach is about sort of the core in satellite approach, right? Core when you're investing should be pretty boring, you know, long term trends. And if you want to take risk, you you take it in that sort of satellite portion. And the reason I'm bringing this up is the core piece, right? Um, some of the long term trends right now that a lot of people are paying attention to is artificial intelligence. Um, they're paying attention to healthcare as the population ages. Obviously, they're paying attention to the environment as, as we try to fight global warming. Mm-hmm. So with that, where do you see the best opportunities um, in, in those three areas in Asia? So AI, healthcare, and what was the third one? I forgot quickly. Uh, uh, environment. Environment, yeah. So in AI, start with that. There are two key opportunities in the region. You need fast chips on AI, super con- uh, semiconductors. And the best semiconductors on the planet are made in Taiwan. Simple. So Taiwanese Taiwan semiconductors. Taiwan, TMSC, is it? Uh, yeah. TSMC is one of the producers there. That's right. It's the biggest one. They are, um, I used to live in Taiwan 20 years ago. The talk was, hey, the Chinese are starting up. The Americans are trying to compete. They could probably catch up in 10 years. But 25 years later, they haven't caught up. They are at the 
cutting edge of chip making on the planet. So look at those sort of companies or the equipment makers of that. There's, by the way, a company in the Netherlands that is a real big equipment company makes equipment that only they can make on the whole planet. So these are companies that are super specialized and make a very high quality product that you need in AI. So that's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is simply companies that are going to adopt AI and be very clever with it. That is more difficult to identify exactly. Um, so then you need to really be almost like a stock analyst and, and, and go at that level. But for the moment, I think just stick with memory makers, chip makers in, in Asia. You'll be doing uh, pretty good on that, uh, on that front. Healthcare is different across the whole region. Chinese healthcare providers that are listed tend to be medical equipment companies. In India, they tend to be more pharma companies that produce kind of products that come off patent in the US and eh, developed by US companies. But after 10 years... Yeah, the generic companies. Yeah, they say, okay, we can make this much cheaper when they do that. So that's a different sort of business. But healthcare across the region is a growth area for the aging that takes place and people getting richer, so they want to spend on it. And you can actually, you, you can be very specific on the companies and products you buy. Actually, what I like as well, medical tourism. There are hospitals in Bangkok listed where people in Hong Kong, Singapore, India, Middle East, uh, their insurance says, listen, if you do a health checkup here in Hong Kong, it costs you, uh, it's quite expensive here, but let's say $1,000. I'm just making up a number here. If you go to Bangkok, you can fly there for 150 US dollars and you could do it for 200 US dollars, 350. And you can throw in a hotel night and have a nice day at the pool there for a weekend. And for $500, so half the price, sometimes not even half the price, you could do this in Bangkok in facilities that are top notch. There are European and US doctors there that do that. So that is a very big growth. Medical tourism, a big growing area as well. And then you said uh, green and renewables and these sort of things. And if there's one country that's making a big drive into that, it's China. China leads in solar modules production. Uh, it's very big in wind. Uh, it's uh, nuclear. It's, it's expanding as well. India has got a few companies uh, that, that are really making forward ways in that as well, because India needs to import and, and a lot of oil. And they have to, don't they? Because they've, they've been, um, sorry, Harold, but they, they've been relying a lot on coal and, and getting flack, right? Exactly. They and, and I don't know if you've been in Delhi recently, uh, but air pollution is, is, is not so. Uh, it's, it's not clear blue skies there anymore. So yeah, there's polluting industries. Coal is one of them. You're right, and they import a lot of oil from well the Middle East and uh, gas and uh, from other countries, Russia amongst others. Um, and that is a strategic vulnerability. And now they think, hey, we can also do renewables in India, solar, wind, and these sort of things, and hydro. And that's what they're building out as well. So you can do it in India pretty good as well. But China has got a lot of companies that are really leading the world in some of the renewable technologies, uh, solar, amongst others. Well, there you go. So much, uh, like we said, so much opportunity in Asia. Harold, I really appreciate your time. Now, um, before I let you go, I ask my guests three rapid fire questions. Uh, is everybody ready to play? Bring it up. Okay. What is the best financial advice you've received? The best financial advice I once got from somebody is put your money more in equities than you think you should because it is not as risky as you think. A lot of people think it's very risky. Uh, and he literally said to me, crossing the street is risky, but you do that as well. There's risk everywhere. But uh, this, is what, this is related to it. Keep it simple. So just buy an ETF for the S&P 500 or something like that. If you want, you can go deeper, but if you're not really wanted and you're not a stock analyst, just keep it simple and stay invested. Don't try to trade or be very clever on the market. You think you can outbeat the market. No, no, just go and write with the market. <laughs> 
Yeah, don't sit around with your friends and watch TV and, and trade trade ideas. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Don't don't go with these Indian guys. Exactly, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, on the flip side, then, what is the worst financial advice you've received? The worst financial advice I get is literally the flip side of this. I was once on a dinner table. Somebody had some money that he had uh, suddenly received, I think, from inherit- inheritance or something like that. He asked people around the table, "What do you think I should do with it?" And the advice that was somebody was given is to play in options. And he went around the table, but he never really got to me in the end. We later on walked outside the house to uh, to a taxi, and he said, listen, I, we didn't really get to you, but this guy was talking about options, so what do you think about this? And I asked him a question. Have you ever heard of Mr. Black or Mr. Scholes? He says, no, I don't know these people. I said, well, if Mr. Black and Mr. Scholes have invented the pricing of options, a mathematical model, if you don't know that, you don't know options. This is... If you read something on options, that will be on the first page, uh, option pricing. And if you don't know that, you don't know what options are, do not do this. So the worst advice was exactly the opposite. Try to be complex and interesting, but not understanding what you're investing in. So therefore, the best advice was keep it simple. Yeah, very, very important. I get I get asked questions about options and, you know, I studied options. I have my CFA and yep. and you, you can make good money in options, but you, you do have to know what you you're doing. You need to know what you're Absolutely. doing. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, the last question. For those who are looking to level up their financial health in 2024, what's what's one message that you would impart them with? I think 2024 can be a year whereby we're worried about many things. There's a, quite a few elections all around the world, including the US will be a big one, of course. But I think that the omens for equities around the world are pretty good, actually. I think people are too pessimistic on earnings, particularly in the US. I think uh, bond yields could fall. That's good for equities. So I think uh, stay invested and do not get too distracted by all the risks that might come our way. Uh, And uh, that would be my... That would be my key advice for 2024. I love it. Fantastic. I love it. Um, Harold, thanks again so much uh, for your insights on Asia. And and for those of you who want to understand Asia better, Harold actually has a book. Um, it's called Asia Stock Markets from the Ground Up. Um, I'm assuming, Harold, we can get that on Amazon. Yeah, you can go on Amazon. It's uh, right there. Easy to get. It's very easy to read. I've, I've had somebody who knows nothing about finance saying that he read it in a weekend and uh, learned a lot out of it. So it's written for people who know nothing about Asia and the stock markets, but would like to know a little bit more. And uh, yeah, so I course suggest people to read it i've written it for people so that they can understand and learn about it yeah yeah i remember you doing that and you also have a podcast under the banyan tree under the banyan tree yeah that's myself i'm so i'm the chief strategist at hbc in asia uh my colleague is the chief economist fred neumann and with the two of us we sit down uh yeah we we sit down together and we talk about what happens in asia from geopolitics to market developments to evs all we spoke about here but we delve of course deeper into it um and we have a lot of analysts that we can bring in to talk about, let's say, uh, the Red Sea and shipping now, or maybe later EVs in China or later what else, right? What is uh, Whatever is hot. So uh, uh, it's free for all on Spotify under the Banyan Tree, and it gives you a great way to stay connected with this part of the world. Wonderful. Under the Banyan Tree, I will put that in the show notes along with uh, with your book. Um, Harold, thanks again. Appreciate it. And we'll have you back soon. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. Have a good evening. Well, that does it for this show. Thanks for joining today. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button and leave a review if you love what you see. We'll see you back here next week. Until then, stay well, stay wise, and stay wealthy. Stay wealthy.